I'm Siobhan McClay, she, her. And I'm Jen Jackson, she, her. And this is Embodiment for the Rest of Us, a podcast series exploring topics within intersections that exist in fat liberation. In this show, we interview professionals and those with lived experience alike to learn how they are affecting radical change and how we can all make this world a safer place for those living in larger bodies and in marginalized spaces. Captions and content warnings are provided in the show notes for each episode, including specific timestamps, so that you can skip triggering content anytime that feels supportive to you. This podcast is a representation of our co-hosts and guest experiences and may not be reflective of yours. These conversations are not medical advice and are not a substitute for mental health or nutrition support. In addition, the conversations held here are not exhaustive in scope or breadth. These topics, these perspectives are not complete and are always in process. These are just the highlights. Just like posts on social media or any other podcast, this is just a glimpse. We are always interested in any feedback on this process if something needs to be addressed. You can email us at listener, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R, at embodimentfortherestofus.com. And now for today's episode. Welcome to episode four of our first season of the podcast. And speaking of first, it's the first interview. Yay! (laughs) We interviewed Alicia McCullough, she, her, about her embodiment journey. Alicia McCullough is a millennial licensed clinical mental health therapist currently residing in the DMV. She is also an independently published author of the book, Blossoming. Alicia is passionate about racial healing and anti-colonialism within eating disorders. She is motivated to increase access and create spaces for Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority to come together and heal in ways that inspire holistic wellness and liberation-focused healing. Outside of her clinical work, she is a co-founder of the Amplify Melanated Voices Movement and the founder of the Holistic Black Healing Collective. Her work has been featured by Target, Bustle, Pop Sugar, LA Times, and Forbes. You can find her work on social media under the handle at Black and Embodied. And now for today's episode, we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. We are so glad to have you with us for our very first interview. Yay! <laughs> we are nervous and excited, pretty equally. We can't wait to just be present in this conversation. Today, we have Alicia with us, someone we both adore. There's so much wisdom and kindness coming your way. How are you today, Alicia? So far, I am doing pretty good today. Um, I actually started off today pretty slow. Um, And so that was a good thing. At first, I was kind of like beating myself up a little. I was like, oh, you know, like I started my day a little late. But honestly, I'm like, maybe this was just the flow that was needed for today. So I'm just giving myself that kindness and that um, compassion and that grace around like however today flows is however today flows for me. Ooh, I need that reminder too. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> having a nice ease into the you have a nice ease into the day, and hopefully this continues to feel like an easeful day for you. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love that so much. 
So since we're inside the context of this podcast, Embodiment for the Rest of Us, we'd love to start with asking a centering question um, about how these themes resonate. Can you share with us what embodiment means to you? It's even part of your Instagram handle, something I noted, um, and what your embodiment journey was like, if you would like to share that with us. Yeah. And so for me, embodiment means to return back to ourselves. And so um, that for me looks like on a couple different levels. So one, returning to self and like going back into your body, um, but also like culturally returning to yourself, but like reclaiming your culture as well as like um, indigenous practices and also dismantling things that you've been told about yourself that are just lies that are not there to serve you. And so um, that's what I think about when I look at embodiment. And so what that practice has looked like for me is that um, one of the things I try to do um, every day, and it's not um, done like super um, scriptive, but I do engage in yoga. And so yoga Mm. is my way of like being in my body um, in the morning or just an afternoon pick me up and really just checking in and seeing where am I at for the day. And so that's a a thing that I actually learned in grad school. Um, I learned about meditation and then yoga was the next thing that kind of came along with that. And so that's been a way that I've been in my body um, through yoga practice. And then regarding being in my body by returning back to my indigenous culture and dismantling um, internalized oppression, that looks like um, me first noticing that I had internalized oppression. Mm. And so um, I was experiencing a lot of of that oppression, the abuse behind it um, from these systems, whether it's white supremacy or sexism or patriarchy. Um, I was experiencing all of that and wondering, like, what's going on with my life? And so it really took for me to be able to like have names um, for what I was what I was experiencing, but then also to figure out like how have I internalized those things, whether it's patriarchy, sexism, misogyny, or um, and other oppression, other oppressed identities that I do not hold, knowing the ways that I internalized those as well, and how those were also keeping me um, limited and just restrictive. And so um, it was really the journey of like unpacking all of that which led me to really create Black and Embodied, um, which was my Instagram page, um, Mm -hmm. to really talk about each of these different topics, specifically around body image, eating disorders, disordered eating, um, and look at how all of those things kind of um, intersect with each other. And so that's what kind of led me to this journey. And I'm I'm still doing it, right? Like I'm still um, working on um, disconnecting from the ways that oppression shows up in the small ways and in the Mm. bigger ways. Um, and really reclaiming my own culture throughout that process and reclaiming my own indigenous ways and, and hope, hopefully opening up a pathway for others to do the same. Something that really sticks out to me about what you said so far is the use of language in mm. embodiment. Having something be yours, like even the word reclaim feels like it's a way to have it become part of ourselves. And then when you were talking about dismantle, I love that word related to topics like this because I like thinking of these things toppling down, that they're not just internalized forever and that we have choice in the matter. We can do something, we can evolve, we can change, and we can ask the world to meet us in that place, which feels very much related to embodiment because we are embodied in the world. We're not in a vacuum. And so Mm -hmm. thinking about this language and these words was just having me go with you on this journey as you were talking about it. Um, I wanted to snap a lot while you were talking and really (laughs) help myself back because of the audio. And I also just really got present to your compassion for yourself 
Even as you said, it's like still happening, but I'm so present to how it is for you. And it made me feel really warm here across a Zoom where we're not even in the same space, made me feel really connected. And that's something that really inspires me about embodiment is how connected it can feel and connecting it can feel. So thank you for sharing that. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. I totally agree and know that like even as you were talking about that, energy is not confined by like our space or like mm. where we are. Like energy just moves. And I think that's the good thing about like not being confined. Our embodiment practices causes us to yes, return to our bodies, but also to find that space where we're not confined, where we can um expand mm. and connect in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my so, god, I got chills. I just got chills. Okay. <laughs> I did too. I I love your definition of embodiment and learning a little bit about your journey. One thing that really stuck out for me was noticing and naming internalized oppression. I think that's not spoken about a lot. It's when I hear about embodiment, you know, kind of in pop culture, um, there's a lot of, I take this on and I take this on and I embrace this. But I think if you truly want to be an embodied person, I think you have to be willing to call yourself on your own shit. I don't feel like I'm a completely embodied person if I'm not naming what I'm doing wrong so that I can repair and reflect even within myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it as well, um, is being able to recognize the parts of you that are holding those um, privileged identities and Mm -hmm. also that have been um, benefiting from those privileged identities, even though you might also hold oppression as well. I think sometimes people get this idea of like, oh, I'm just oppressed, you know, when it's Mm -hmm. like, no, as human beings, we all have areas where we're privileged in. And I think that's important to be able to acknowledge so that one, that we can do something about it and use that privilege to make a road and a path for other folks to be able to step through and step on um, along their journey with us, but also so that we're not continuing to perpetuate systems that are meant to keep us in this space of feeling as if we're not good enough or we're not worthy enough. And so I think that um, that is important that we're addressing that and then also working to undo that. Ooh, yeah, it's something that we talked about in maybe the last episode or the episode before. Um, acknowledging this privilege and finding it as something that you can use to help uplift yourself, uplift other people. Something we talk about a lot is kind of this imposter syndrome. Like, yeah, when I think about my privilege, I you know, I want to be able to use it as a way of helping others, helping myself. And often imposter syndrome gets in the way, like, who am I? Like, I don't know if I'm the person who can always speak to that. And that makes me think about your page. I love your Instagram page. I, this is a bit of a digression, but I have to say it. I am on your page. Like, I don't even (laughs) like social media, but if there's a page I'm on, it's yours. Um, And um, I wonder what, what made you decide to create such a prolific and important and very visible presence online to be able to talk about embodiment for people? What, what was your process with that? Yeah. And so for me, it really started that at the time when I made my Instagram page, I was working in a super um, oppressed environment, Mm. a work environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with that, I would often speak out at work about injustices that were being faced by me and others in the workplace. Um, I would try to hold these like diversity meetings, um, quote unquote, and all of those things. Um, And I wasn't being heard. Like, you Mm. know, I do make all these efforts and do all this work. Um, lay out so many different articles with resources and all this. And I'm like, people are going to change. Like I've done everything the way it's supposed to be. People are going to change. And, you know, I wasn't heard. Those efforts um, either didn't, they were not substantial 
or, you know, that they were ignored and like shut down. And so um, I came across another opportunity to work in another job. And one of the things that the um, person that was going to employ me at the time um, mentioned was like, hey, it's important to have a social media presence Mm -hmm. around some of the things that you're doing and talking about. And so I started off by just getting on social media, following some pages that I thought were saying some really important things around body image and body justice and all that. And um, through their work, I would reshare their things. Like I would just reshare yeah. things and say, oh, I relate to that. I relate to that. But I really didn't put myself out there for a couple months until I had the page because I was like, well, people really want to hear my voice. And that was yeah. from that trauma of being shut down, you know, at that job and in that workplace. You know, I thought people didn't want to hear what I had to say. And so one day, I think it was like January 1st of 2019 or something, um, I decided I was like, I'm going to make a post today. And so I I made the post, designed it on Canva and um, uploaded it and people liked it. And I was like, okay, you know, that's interesting, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And, you know, social media, what it became for me was an outlet to say everything I wanted to say and that I was staying at my job and wasn't being heard, it became that outlet to say all those things, you know, and put my energy in that area. And so that's where I started to kind of um, direct my attention away from like trying to um, talk to people that weren't listening and mm-hmm. to people in a space that were open and willing to hear what I had to offer to the world. And again, it started really small. I think I had like a couple folks that I was following that I got really close with. And then um, through connections and meeting other folks, um, such as Jessica Wilson, mm-hmm. um, we met. And we were like, hey, like, we both connected and we were like, hey, we're both experiencing some similar injustices. Like, why don't we make, you know, a post about this? Let's do a shared post. And through our shared post was what really propelled um, the Amplify Melanated Voices Mm -hmm. movement, um, which ended up going global. And I think that honestly was an alignment universally for both of us. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the struggles that we were facing are not unique, unfortunately. And so many people related to that. And so many people, you know, like I said, I was in an environment where my voice wasn't being heard. So many people needed that as an opportunity to kind of break out of that, you know, to break out of that space of being silenced and unheard. And so I think it was honestly just universally aligned for that movement to work in the way it did and for so many people to support it in the way that it was. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Okay, I was like so into listening about that. What well, one thing I really picked up on? Thank you for asking that, Siobhan. Um, mm-hmm. There's something that I picked up on about this, or you could tell me if I got this. But um, that social media was a way to connect with yes. yourself and with other people, Ooh. like very simultaneously. This feeling of this is in alignment. This is working out. This is um, surprisingly giving you what you needed in some, on some level, in some way, um, and to have it resonate globally. I actually didn't even know that, but it resonated globally. Like, I'm so glad that it did. It feels that it's so important that it did. And it also, um, I have a mixed relationship with social media. Um, yeah. <laughs> like a, I think everyone does a love hate. Yeah. And that actually felt very inspiring to me to want to share authentically. And that feels um, like aligned with embodiment that we yeah, can yeah. express ourselves from an embodied place and that that's what resonates like that's what I heard in what you said yes. and yes. I oh I love that absolutely agree I in yes. the same way I love hate it hate it more than I love it and it makes me want to go <laughs> post some things and actually like let myself get heard and not go hide for the next two weeks and actually keep doing <laughs> yes absolutely yeah. Yeah. 
um, I all, like not just expressing ourselves, but I really just got Siobhan and what you said and just like this whole reflective experience we're having right now about social media, that it's a place to hold ourselves and also to be heard by ourselves. Mm. I actually find that I reshare old content when it resonates newly. Mm. And I'm like, wow, it doesn't even feel like I wrote this. It's like a version of me from the past who wrote this, but it has a new resonance. And I was really hearing the possibility of that in what you're saying and just possibility in general. I think that's why it felt really inspiring to me. Wow. I think that's so powerful because, you know, a lot of folks, once my page kind of blew up and I had like um, hundreds of thousands of followers from all mm. from everywhere, people were like, oh, what's the formula? Like, how do I get that? And I'm kind of like, I didn't go in with the intention of this. I didn't go in with the intention of popularity or, you know, having all this influence. Like my intention was really to speak from the heart and to put my heart into my page. Like everything mm. that I was went into my Instagram page and everything that I am goes into it. And so I don't plan my content. Like, literally, like, I could be sitting on my couch looking out the window and an idea will come to me and I'll say, oh, time to type. <laughs> time to type and go in about this topic here. Um, or, you know, like, I'll, I'll be dealing with something and I'm like, you know, that really pisses me off. And I'm like, I'm going to write about that. And so, like, it really comes from the raw, authentic emotions that I'm feeling in the moment. And I just put it out there. And so, um, Jen, when you were saying, like, hey, like, I look back at my post sometimes and I'm like, who wrote that? Like, I do that all the time. Like, I'll look back at it to a post and I'm like, oh my God, like I created this whole thing here or like this was actually an idea. And I think it's just because like something happens when we're in our in ourselves and in our bodies and we're able to create in that way. It's almost like we're taking outside of this physical room that we're in and put into this other dimension so that we can do this, put it out there and then just like have it there, you know, and so many and relate to so many people in the moments that they need. Right. And I know your goal wasn't to have this huge following and to have this much influence, but I think you do because of that, because you're practicing embodiment and you are being your authentic self and you have so much, so many important things to say that we just block to you. <laughs> I'm such a fan girl. So. <laughs> Me too. Also something in what you said about when you talked about going to another realm, another plane, another dimension, like these sorts of things come to mind. Um, a place where we can try on what it's like to be ourselves as fully expressed is what I was also hearing in what you said. And like play, like playtime I was hearing, like even if it's something that makes you angry or is volatile in some way, right? Those kinds of feelings that you get to play around with it and it becomes like that kind of playtime feels like real practice to me. Um, yeah. And I actually feel that. So I follow you on Patreon as well. And I feel that there also that there is in the prompts that you offer there, the way that you, I've actually used this word before about you, that it feels ethereal, uh, like very similar to what you were describing, um, that I, it doesn't feel outside of myself. It feels deep within myself. Um, I hadn't considered that perspective before. I hadn't interrogated that in myself before. Um, and also that, um, I have never given myself the opportunity to express myself to myself about this topic. Like I just, it's not in my imagining it's in your imagining. Yeah. Um, and so I feel very held by you in that kind of space too. Mm -hmm. Like I feel held in this conversation right now. I feel <laughs> held on your social media of any kind. Yes. Um, you have a real presence about you of holding other people, which tells mm -hmm. me like, we can't do that unless we hold ourselves first. So yes. I'm also mm -hmm. really getting present to how much you hold yourself and how strong your practice is. Ooh. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes. Yes. It is not easy work at all. Um, I was just talking to a spiritualist um, that I'm in community with. And, you know, I was 
you know, getting some, some work done. So essentially I do a lot of spirituality work, whether it's getting readings done or um, divinations and things like that, and really connecting with like my own ancestral lineage and all that. And, um, you know, that was one of the things that came up was that like, for me, when signs, when ancestors, when universe, God, power, 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 you know, whoever, you know, communicates to me that it's kind of like this thing of like, you know, this is where we are now. And you're going to have to make some like challenging steps to get to where you need to be, but you can't lead other people to that space or even um, advocate for that space for other people unless you've met yourself there first. And so like, that's been a big part of my journey is like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell somebody to go somewhere where I haven't been, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's powerful. That's really powerful. Ooh, I had to dance for a second. I got chills. That was great. <laughs> I'd like to go to the next part of the title of our podcast, which is The Rest of Us. I'd like to ask, what does the rest of us mean to you? And how do you identify as the rest of us? And also further on, um, if you don't mind telling us how you um, identify your privileges as well. I think it's really important to keep that in mind when we talk about embodiment. Absolutely. And so when I think about the rest of us, first, I think about the context of the eating disorder field. Um, And so we think about the eating disorders field as it's always been. um, It's always been white, thin, cisgendered um, women that have dominated this field, whether it's through um, being practitioners or being those that are receiving treatment or even those that are doing the theories and techniques that inform the work that we're doing. It's always been and specifically with techniques and theory, it's been more or white cisgender men, um, but you know, it's mostly been dominated by that white superiority complex. And so, um, when I think about the rest of us, I think about those that don't fall within those ranges, that don't fall within those categories. And so, you know, one of the things that I do think is important is to name, you know, what categories I fall into and which areas that I hold privilege. And so, you know, when I think about my oppressed identities, I'm a black woman, but I'm also a cisgendered woman. And so, that is privilege that I do. Hold hold um, within community and that, you know, I'm not being targeted because of the fact that, you know, I don't identify, that I do identify within the gender binary. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. um, being targeted as other folks have been. Um, also, I think about the fact that I'm able-bodied. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not also experiencing disability, um, discrimination. Um, I think it's so important when we're talking about just body image in general to also name that while, you know, I might go to my medical provider and I might be labeled within the the trash BMI um, (laughs) as like, you know, the O word, right? And Mm -hmm. I try not to use that because I know the O word is specifically a word that was created by the medical system to discriminate and to um, basically just ensue hatred on people that are in fat bodies. Um, While I have been classified in those ranges and I have experienced, you know, people talking about my body or negative comments and fat internalized fat phobia, personally, I exist in a straight size body. And so I don't Mm. navigate the world in the way that somebody that is not in a straight size body would navigate the world. And so I think when I look at privileges, I hold a lot of privileges. Yes, I do experience, like I said, the oppression of being a black woman living in America, as well as being kind of lower SES status, Mm -hmm. socioeconomic status, and some other things as well. Um, But those big pieces there are also hold privileges. And so I think that even in my work, I center voices that um, hold those identities, you know, and I'm always trying to unpack and learn the ways that I might be contributing to the oppression of folks that are in those communities as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Ooh, that was great. Yeah. We, yeah. we said that a lot too. That was great. Um, <laughs> when we get bowled they, over, we're like, ah, let's yeah. that was great. <laughs> I, love, I even put it into our scripts. That yeah. was great. <laughs> I, I, know I love that. that. <laughs> uh, I'm really um, getting a lot out of just being in the presence of you talking through something. Mm-hmm. Um, listening to you um reflect on both what feels like a macro and micro level at the same time which feels really powerful to me i'm trying to wrap my brain around that because there's something just very it's just sitting in my body as i listen um about what intersections lie within us that mm-hmm. send us in this direction or that direction which could be up down or whatever it's also actually making me think about the sense of loss that comes from having these conversations And what I mean by that is like when we realize that we hold a privilege to really engage in it and to reduce the harm that we do through that identity, that we have to mourn that it can't be the same for us anymore. It's something I was just like sitting with right now, as you said that, that it's, it feels so important in a caring profession and just as a person to try not to harm other people. And that requires more presence and a building of more and more presence, not less over time, right? It's always Mm -hmm. gonna feel like work. Yes. Mm -hmm. Even if it brings us something so spectacular as in opening our minds and our lives to not harming, uh, to reduce, I don't think that's really possible, to reducing harm. Yes. um, Repairing, restoring from when there is harm. And also a process of growth, evolution, transformation. I want to use the word elevation, but that actually feels supremacist right after you saying Mm -hmm. that. Like, we don't need to become purely Mm -hmm. good in this way or anything, but somewhere that feels like not where we were before, whatever Mm -hmm. that is to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just felt, I mean, I felt that swirling around me. It was, I was so present to me in my body listening Mm -hmm. to that, realizing that I want to do more grief work about this for myself. So that I can notice it before, not during right. and after. That's really right. my journey right now. It's like I notice a lot of things during or after, and there's a lot of repair and restore. Ideally, I don't know if this is possible for me, but I'm still going to go for it. I'd like to notice before. Right. I really would. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I can be present to harm that I might be doing in real time. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm so sorry that that happened. I just noticed. Can I please repair with you here? I really want to have presence to that. Yes. So thank you for that. I just, mm. yeah, thank you for that. Yes, absolutely. And I think... Um, in thinking about the grief that might come around from uh, recognizing privilege, making sure that grief doesn't morph into guilt. And I was, as you were speaking, mm. I, I have a certain aspect of my identity that has changed in the last few years. Um, I did not grow up in a family that had, you know, the amount of financial privilege that I do now. And so there's definitely been some it sounds silly, but there's been some grief about not being able to identify with you know, the need to hustle, the need yep. to work nonstop to make sure that I can survive. But there also has been a lot of work and still needs to continue to be work in that it doesn't become this amount of guilt where I feel like I need to shrink myself. It's how can I use this to not elevate, but to hold space for other people to make a difference in some way. So yes. that's what's sitting with me. Because when I think about people, Jen, you, someone else who's like, I, I'm grieving the fact that I can't, you know, sit with this amount of privilege, whatever it is, if it's, say, for instance, it is white privilege, um, so it doesn't turn into white guilt, right? So that it turns into, I am white, 
I am going to use my privilege in, able, in order to do blank and hold space for other people who do identify as the rest of us in some way. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And I'm actually even still like sitting with that, like you said, of how sometimes even our identities change throughout our lives. Yeah. Um, and just what that might look like for you as you're holding space for like the newness, right? Mm-hmm. But without that survivor's guilt or yes. even just guilt in general, right? Yes. Like letting that go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is so powerful just to even sit with and think about holding space for that. And I think that for me, it's been helpful to lean into both those privileged and oppressed identities because mm-hmm. they really do, like for me anyway, um, help me understand each side. Like the more I lean into like understanding where, where I hold oppression, the more it's like, okay, and now I have, you know, I can think more about the ways that I am privileged or the more that I have privilege and lean into those and say like, here's ways that I'm changing to make it better for those. It's almost like I can Mm. understand each side a little better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Ooh, that's that's really good. I hadn't even thought of it that way. Absolutely. So this is so cliche, but it's like two sides of the same coin. Like if you don't pay attention to the side that's on the table or on the floor, it seems like really glistening and like, ooh, there's money. But when you turn it over, right, that's where the dirt is. Mm -hmm. And just... Like the, not that we're dirty. I mean, gritty stuff. Like yeah. the stuff that's like sticky and gritty, like that yeah. side of thing. Like the stuff that was touching the gross road is yeah. really how that sticks out in my mind. I also, like we were talking about embodiment journey before. And also when you were, as we're all reflecting in this space, something else I'm getting present to is um, not only is it a journey, but each part of that journey is just as important as the other parts. Like some feel positive and warm, mm. some feel negative and nothing but grief. Some of them feel depressive. Some of them feel full of anticipation or regret yeah. or like feelings like that, feeling and sensations in the body. And I'm just really getting present to how much value there actually is in exploring each of those places mm. that, that there's a sort of evenness or I, the word balance is so tricky, but like there's a sort of balance or like center place to come to because we've done the work of both of those things yes. is something I'm realizing I would like to work on the, the, mm-hmm. I mean, this is called like shadow work or the shadow side. Like I would mm-hmm. like to really consider what doesn't work. Where do I think I'm not causing harm anymore? And yet here I still am like those right. kinds of moments. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I want to be more embodied in a way. Um, And I want to support clients in a way that they can be more embodied where they get to be like transparency and authenticity are both coming to mind. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. The harmony of those. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's the word I was looking for. Not balance, harmony. I was feeling that. I was feeling that when you were talking, like that word was coming up. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that gift. I say, I always say balance is a problem. And then I never think of what to say next. Thank you for that gift. I'm going to take that with me. I'm going to write it. I'm writing it down for everyone who cannot see us. Um, Because it has the same, like, there's a real resonance to that. I can feel it within myself. And also, like you said earlier about energy transfer, like I can feel it, feel it in the air around me. So I can, t- like, there's something about that has a very particular feeling in my body. So thank you very much for that wonderful gift. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it just keeps popping up for me yeah, as we're talking ahead. about our privilege and acknowledgement of our privilege as providers. How is it for you to work with clients who also come from these marginalized populations, but maybe they experience more marginalization than you? Because of the bullshit BMI 
of the medical industrial complex, um, you are identified by medical providers under the O word, but you are able to shop in straight sizes. Yeah. How does, and I think we all, you know, have these kind of rest of us identities, but may not always are further along the spectrum of that. How do you yes. do the work and how do you hold space for people who you can identify in that way, but maybe not to that extreme? Yeah. So in ways that you hold more privilege within this marginalized space, how do you hold space for people who have less privilege within it? Absolutely. And so I think that goes back to like that piece around how, you know, when you hold privileged and oppressed identities, like each one can kind of like um, work harmoniously to like mm -hmm. um, help you understand each one. And so I think about and I put myself in a predicament of like if I was in therapy and I'm working with, for example, and this just comes to mind um, more like if I was working with a white therapist, mm -hmm. what are some things that I would need to show up in that dynamic and get the support I need? Well, one, I think the question is, can I even show up in that dynamic? Like, do I have so much trauma from the system of white supremacy that even mm. sitting in the room or across from a white provider, would that be too triggering for me? And so that's the first thing. And then the second thing I would have to think about is even if I'm in here, like, what am I giving up to be in this room with this provider? Like what Ooh. type of um, things would I have to explain or, you know, like ways that I second guess things, even as I'm going through the healing journey with this white provider. And is that worth it? And then the third thing is kind of thinking about like, if none of that's at play, like, am I going to be able to heal? And so I take that same experience that I would use if I was in the room and apply it to the work that I'm doing with clients that don't, that don't hold as much privilege as I do. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm the first thing I'll ask a client, I'll be transparent. Firstly, I'll first be transparent and say, here's the size body that I exist in, you know, like now that we're in um, zoom, a lot of the times with the pandemic, yeah. they can't really see you, you know, that much. So I'll name it. Like I exist in this size body here's the privilege that I hold and is this based on how you're coming in um and it's totally fine if you feel like you don't want to or you can't or it's too much like do you feel like this is a dynamic that is going to help you heal and like I hold so much compassion and space for like wherever they're at with that and so some folks might say like you're right nope I didn't think about it and I actually mm. prefer to work with the provider that is in a bigger body or does hold these specific identities and I totally understand that I release mm. them with love and try to find them someone that does hold those identities um maybe they're saying like yeah i can work with you but you know there's things that i might be second guessing and so then i'm intentional as the provider to go do my research um also make sure that i'm learning checking myself in the process and being very intentional in that dynamic with that person so they're not feeling like they're a burden or they're having to do more work in our relationship with each other. And then, you know, if it is that we're working together pretty, you know, pretty well, I'm still just being intentional throughout asking questions, checking in, you know, giving them permission to like completely call me out. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that's okay. And that's the way we need to dismantle the field. Like I'm not the expert, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm learning and like, I'm a part of this journey with them, but I don't want to put that burden onto them. And so mm. um, just being really intentional about how I'm showing up in a way that fosters, um, you know, an equal relationship versus one where it's like, I'm this head therapist with all these degrees and titles and all that. And they're this like client who's just showing up and having to conform to whatever treatment plan or whatever that I have planned for them. Like this, it's mm. about co-creating and creating that um, dual dynamic where they feel like an agent in their healing as well. Um, that, that, made, that made me want you to be my therapist. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> so let's just pretend we never spoke before and I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> 
exactly. Cancel the podcast. Podcast done. I'm moving to your state. One thing that really, I, I just, oh, that whole answer just blew me away. And transparency is so important. And the way that you hold space for just us, it, it shows how much space you're holding for your clients, how, many, how much space you're showing for, you know, holding for yourself. The question that really like made me have to like, whew, I almost fell out of my seat was like, thinking about if I'm going into these spaces, how much of, I might be forgetting because my head's spinning because it was such a good thing that you said, but um, how much of my, how much am I willing to lose? How much am I willing to give up of myself by being in this space? And I think that's so important because we all, I, we all live in a world where we're not always welcome based on certain yeah. identities. Like how much am I willing to lose by being present with this person? Wow. Whoa. Just, whew, that was good. Yes. Yes. And I heard one of your favorite words, Siobhan, in my head while I was listening to her, which is discernment. To be yes, able to discern. Yes. Yes. The, yes. The opportunity, also very trauma sensitive, was also, yes, I was absolutely. sitting with that, that mm -hmm. the, the people that you work with, and this includes you as the practitioner, that you get to choose which spaces you hold, mm -hmm. that your clients get to choose who they co-create with. I loved yeah. all the co kind of language yeah. in there. And um, as the sessions continue or not, that that is always present. Yes. Um, a chance to be, so I'm hearing this in embodiment language now, a chance to be embodied with each other yes. without losing either of yourselves yes. in this mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. um, so she was talking about, well, clients think about like, what do I, like, what is too much to lose? But mm -hmm. also as the mm -hmm. practitioner, right? We are human beings. It's something I'm always yes. trying to think about for myself because I used to leave myself out of this conversation. Um, how embodied am I getting to be? Yes. What are my boundaries? Mm -hmm. And what are mm -hmm. my, more importantly, what are my limits? When does it feel too far? And how can I not lose myself in this process either? Feels like the opportunity for reducing harm and having really clear and transparent conversations comes from a space like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So those who can't see me, I'm like shaking in my chair with like just feeling that in my body. Um, so that that's also really uh, making me think of the next question that I want to ask you, Alicia. Um, a word that's come up a couple of times in what you've responded, intersectionality and intersections, right? Yeah. Um, which I'm hearing also now along with the word harmony, which feels really important because we often yeah. think about it just in terms of oppression and marginalization, right? Push down and out. I'm hearing a new element of this and I'm really curious um, how this sits for you. Um, different intersections about embodiment, right? Privileges about embodiment or lack thereof. Um, and how unchecked privilege from providers, kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about, um, can cause harm and how that sits for you. Yeah, so I often think about, um, you know, how does it look for folks that we're telling to just be positive, like just be positive about your body, you know, like just be in your body. How does that look for people that don't identify with the body they've been assigned, you know, um, for our folks that are gender expansive, for our folks that are transgender? What does it look like for you to tell them like, hey, just be in the body and be positive about it? When again, like, 
that body is not something that makes them feel empowered or liberated in, and they don't want to feel positive about it. And I think that's where our privileges can come in, especially when we don't hold like a gender expansive identity or a trans identity, that those privileges can come in when we're telling folks to do something and to be embodied with something that doesn't make them feel the most free. And so I think that's a big piece of it um, to be intentional about when we look at intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ooh, it's reminding me of something we were talking about earlier about naming and also asking. Mm -hmm. So I was just hearing there, like what works for them, what language works for them. Yes. Um, which expansive conversations work for them. Yeah. Uh, what feels like the edge of comfort for them. Um, and also what feels like a topic not to be touched right now. And maybe yeah. even a chance to say, can I ask you about this later on? And you tell me how it feels then. Something that feels important and maybe yeah. important to them, but now is not the time. Creating space both for this is the time and also this is not the time. Yeah. I was really hearing that in what you said. That was yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. I think it also plays into the idea of when we're talking about unchecked privilege, the letters. Degrees. Yes, degrees. It's creating more of a collaborative environment. Like you said, co-creating. Um, and if you're not checking that privilege, like even if you aren't acknowledging it, there's this power differential. So I think it's important to name it, naming and claiming, right? So yes. I'm coming in with all these letters behind my name. And if I'm not acknowledging that, that can lead to a person really feeling even more disembodied because they feel like they can't speak for themselves and what's right for them because, well, I don't have any letters. I don't know what I'm talking about. So I think it's really, that's another part of privilege. I think that's really important in treatments for sure. Absolutely. And when you were saying that, it made me think about how um, when we have our letters, we go through these programs, we get, you know, our certifications and our licensure and our degrees. We've been taught and trained through the lens of white supremacy that tells yes. us that, like, we're the experts, that it's about us, that that's why we're showing up in these spaces, mm -hmm. that we, you know, that's, it's all about us, like, in the practitioner being this, like, high and mighty expert or something. Yes. Whereas, like, a way of reframing it for me has been about, it's not even about me. Like, mm -hmm. let me take myself out of this dynamic. What it really is, is that when I have the privilege of holding space for someone, that it's about um, something that they need, whether it's from the universe, whether it's from, you know, their own lineages, whether it's from, like, just anything is something that they need. And I'm kind of the instrument that's being used, the vessel in some ways that's being used mm. to get that message out and across to them in the space. And so it is important to center what they need. It is important to co-create. It is important to ask them what language works best for you so that the message can come across better and that you can heal and be, you know, well around this language and around this process. And so um, that's what I kind of see it as kind of that reframe from like, it's all about me and all the things I've done and like I'm this person to like no like this is the person across from me and like what do they need mm -hmm. Ooh, and how can you meet them there right now oh, yes um which makes me think about like the potential of reflection like what I just heard and what you just said is this am I missing the mark about that yes. it feels really important to like have the vulnerability of not thinking you have it right from the very first moment of hearing something and also, when you talk about co-creating, I was like, yeah, this space is being held with the person, not for yeah. the person. That has very much, like, that's what I, dietitians, yes. which is what I can speak to, and public health, 
is taught to say like the voice for the voiceless and underrepresented right. and all of these sorts of, I'm like, they're right there. They're people. They exist. <laughs> yes. We forgot. Like, I think these institutions and us as agents of these institutions and degrees and professions are this unlearning process that we do that I can hear is very rich in this conversation right now is reminding ourselves that they're people. Yep. Yes. We're mm-hmm. people, which we've talked about a lot already. Also, they're people, and I want them to be, We, I think, well, I'm not going to speak for either of you, but I want them to be people first, not yeah. my client first. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, they mm-hmm. don't have to show up for me in a particular way. I will, I will do my absolute best to meet them where they are whenever it is that we engage with one another. Yeah. Um, because that's part of the process is that's a rare space. I'm yeah. just, that's what I'm getting present to right now, that it's a rare space for someone to actually hold space for us as we are. Yes. Which is imperfect. Mm -hmm. And yet it's often not the space that we encounter with other people in our profession who have not done this similar level of work. And I have a lot of work to do. I'm not trying to say like, I've done all the work. It's more like right now I can tell that the unlearning that I've done, because I can hear it in this conversation is really like it's with them. Yeah. Under Ooh. them, around them. Like when you said vessels, like, yeah, like a, Ooh. like a virtual hug word. space. Yes. Like I'm a hugger. That's why I always go to hugs, but like some, <laughs> some kind of, uh, also the word sacred is coming yes. to mind. Sacred. Mm-hmm. Like this space is not just special. Like there's something about, and it's not because of us. It's because of them. They bring that. Yep. We create, we just hold it yep. with them again, not for them. Mm. Yes. Uh, um, talking about all of this and making, you know, holding space for people who need space and are always giving space reminds me of a change that you've made recently in your language on Instagram and in your life <laughs> that feels really, really important. How has intentionally using BI and POC rather than BIPOC changed the scope of your work? Yeah, so for me, it's really acknowledged the um, separate and unique struggles and the ways that those um, with more privilege have um, more work to do around like really unpacking anti-Blackness, but also again, like really holding space for the ways that we can show up uniquely. And so I think sometimes, for example, even when we look at Black Indigenous, um, a lot of times we can name someone as being Black, but we don't see Black people as being Indigenous to a place. Black people are Indigenous Mm. to a lot of places. Um, throughout the world, you know, and so like, I think it gives and holds space for that, um, as well as the indigenous folks and the struggles and the colonization and things that they went through all over the world as well, because indigenous folks are indigenous to a lot of different places as well, not just America, um, you know, and so I think that's important to say. And then I think separating and people of color is really intentional because it does allow for those that um, to define their own way within that realm of of color, you know? And so, like, for example, some folks might be white passing. Um, and so, like, they can classify themselves within the POC range while also acknowledging that, you know, while, for example, they might be a lighter-skinned POC mm-hmm. and they do experience depression, that it's not the same oppression that someone who might be a darker-skinned Black Indigenous person would face um, when we look at that term. And so I think it really offers... Um, that complexity to the ways that our identities show up. Now with saying that, I will say that even for these acronyms that, you know, we didn't necessarily create these to define ourselves, that other people created it to define mm-hmm. it for us. And so while I use it as this scope of like understanding, I don't also like 
box in the understanding of what that means for folks, you know? And so I try to use it as a way of describing, but also open it up and say, but that's not it. Like there's so many other ways to like identify and and giving folks like um, access to identifying whatever ways that feel best for them. Oh my goodness. So you can't see me on this podcast. We're on a Zoom recording this, but again, this is all audio. Um, So I am a white woman. And so as I'm thinking about this and really sitting with this and realizing that the language that Siobhan had in her question and that you talked so in such a great way about, in other words, that I like really like landed and like sunk in over here that I want to, it's kind of like what we were saying before about intersectionality with clients and reducing harm, like what language is important to people, which, and considering the direction of our language, that it doesn't keep coming from this place of power, that it comes from what people would like to be referred to as, like Mm. reclaiming the word fat, for example, comes to mind Mm. as a kind of adjacent conversation, and um, that it's not up to me. Like that's something I was just really sitting with and I was like, I was like, I have no idea what I would say here. And I thought, well, that seems like a good thing that I did not have something to say there. That like, I wanted to take on what you said for you. Um, And that's not me tooting my own horn. I'm just trying to like say what I'm learning in real time or like really getting. Um, And I think that that would take, I just need to like sit with that and make sure that I practice that um, to make sure that I'm this Siobhan earlier, you said, um, not disembodying people like that one like just really like came across the internet and like slapped me in the face that I was like oh I yes I don't like the kind of harm that shows up that we're taught from these white supremacist structures and that I am an easy agent of as a white woman um that we don't I like I don't know if this is a verb or not microaggress like using microaggressions in a session that undermine the work we're actually trying to do the space we're trying to hold and the clarity with which we want clients to have with us or with themselves that um, our words can sink in in a way when they come from that place um, where we may not notice that we've allowed we've ask them to be disembodied and they may not realize that that's what's happening because of this internalized trauma that you've been referring to Alicia, that, um, we may not notice is happening, right? It's not just that it's internalized and noticing it. It's like, how do we get it out of there? How do we notice it when it happens again? Um, so really just, I was hearing a reminder to myself in there to first of all, say we and us about white women. That's something I used to not do. And, um, to, reflect in session and ask myself is that is any of that going on like can I find any traces of that is something I was just really thinking and getting present to so again thank you for that gift yeah absolutely and I think even hearing you talk Jen what really came up for me was a concrete example and so I've been in spaces where someone's been like yeah like they referred to me as a POC. Like they've said like, mm. um, yeah, cause I know POCs or I know, you know, us POCs, it might be someone who's not black saying this, us POCs. And I immediately know that in my body, there's like this constriction in my chest. Yep. Cause it feels like, <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> I, I, listen, right. Because you know, like you're saying Siobhan too, and agreeing with like, I'm like, when you say that, while yes, I am a person of color by like, 
like I am a co- of color, but like you're erasing the blackness part of that, you know? Yes. So now it feels like that I've been clumped in with this when in fact, like it takes out like all the things that have to do with blackness as well. Absolutely. And so for me, it's, it is that moment of disembodying because my chest clenches mm-hmm. and now I'm thinking like, I'm going through the thing in my head of like, are, you know, are they intentionally saying this? Like, you know, like, or do they know the implications of what they're saying? Like, should in this moment I stand up for myself? Like, what will that do for our unity, you know? And um, all of those things, you know, mm-hmm. because I think sometimes even with unity, it requires for you to erase yourself to be a part yes. of in solidarity with someone else, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm the same way. If someone says me, woman of color, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Yes. Blackity, black, mm-hmm. black. No, black, black, black. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All day, every day. <laughs> I just, it just does not feel right for me. And I don't know how you feel about African-American, but I don't even like being called African-American. Yeah. Like, I am yeah. black. Like, I exactly. Am black. I have had people apologize. Like, oh, it just feels better. You know, I thought I was being more respectful. I'm like, no, black. Yep, just black. Black. <laughs> yeah, but I love, and honestly, I hadn't even thought of, um, that's showing my own privilege or my own lack of education. This is why I love you and I love your page and I'm going to fangirl again for a second. Um, but just, <laughs> um, yes. um, the Black Indigenous, um, like when you said that Black people are Indigenous, I was like, oh my God, holy shit. Oh my God, I'm going to go read for like the next three hours and like yes. get my head on straight about this. This is, I, I, I have not, I read your post, I remember texting you about reading your post and saying like that was huge and this is, you know, I hadn't even thought of it this way, but now it even feels even more nuanced for me and using this, using that term in a really intentional way, both personally and professionally. So thank you for explaining that. That was just huge for me. Yes. And I, and to that, Siobhan, I'll add, you know, I saw a post on Instagram or Facebook, I can't remember, and I don't want to ruin her name. So um, she is a poet. Um, I don't, again, I don't want to say her name wrong, um, but she had this quote where she said, um, you know, before I was black, you know, I was, you know, African, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, before I was defined as Nigerian, I was actually Igbo, which is a um, mm. cultural group within Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And it made me really kind of even reframe my thinking, like, yes, I do identify with black and I'm so much more like, yes. you know, for me, I've been doing this past year is really caused me to do a lot of internal cultural work. And so I've been finding out where my people are from. And so for me, my people are from um, the Sierra Leone, the country of Sierra Leone in Africa, as well as my paternal side is from Nigeria. And, you know, I'm learning specifically about the different tribal groups that we are a part of. And so that's been a second part of like connecting back and returning back home of like, you know, before, you know, Sierra Leone was renamed by the colonizers or Nigeria was renamed by the colonizers. I belong to two distinct groups in Africa that had their own cultures, customs, food, all of these things. And so like, even as I hold space for this collective identity of blackness that was created out of oppression, like, and I really do, you know, connect with that, that there's also so much more that I connect to and belong to as well. And like centering around that too. Ooh, ooh, oh my goodness. So my head is spinning, my head head is spinning slightly, but I'm gonna try to articulate this question anyway. So this was, Reminding me of something that I just learned recently, which again speaks to my privileges that I had no idea something like this was happening in the United States, so in Turtle Island, let's talk about all of North America, that Mm. among indigenous populations, that there were slaves inside of these populations who were of darker skin. Yep. Mm -hmm. So this, Mm -hmm. even among the people that are mentioned in this acronym, there are 
oppressions from one group to another. Yes. Um, which is true everywhere, right? This is just an example of that. Yeah. Um, and so, and also thinking about the latest conversation about residential schools in Canada and now the United mm-hmm. States, where they're unearthing these mass graves that were planned yeah. in the residential schools yeah. um, that because they knew there were going, was going to be a need for graves. Like, right, mm-hmm. this is like very intentional, forward-driven dynamic of racism, oppression, marginalization, violence, and death. Mm-hmm. And getting present to how... I want to say revolutionary, but I think I want to use a different word, but just like, as I was listening to both of you, I was like, this, this is the conversation I was hoping I would get to hear from both of you today, (laughs) um, that I would have the honor and to be present to have a lot of humility of being in this moment and really getting that it was really important that it was shared here. Um, especially with things like this, where it's kind of like when we talk about Martin Luther King, and there's a lot of white people using those quotes out of context and saying, Mm -hmm. look, he agrees with me. Look, he agrees with my oppression of you. Look, he agrees with the fact that you can't rise up in violence against me. All of those kinds of things Mm -hmm. is also, um, and not only do they use his quotes, but very intentionally pictures of anyone in this sort of civil rights movement are black and white, that it looks like it's from the past. Even though I, I'm so sorry that I do not know her name right now. I like Richardson. I have it in my head. I see her face. I just cannot remember her name. Akila Richardson. Yes, thank you. Um, one of the she just died recently, and was part of this movement. And every single picture of her, except for the most recent one, was black and white. Even though it was about 50 years of her life. Wow. I just really got. I'm like, but it's something that I'm beginning to get as I try to not just be in my privilege and have it internalized, but listen to conversations like this and be in these kinds of spaces um, where I'm listening, that I'm really getting, I can tell I'm listening because what I'm getting is that it's very much in the here and now. Like it feels like what I really get is that I would like to notice things in real time. It's something that I think I already said and then I'm really like wanting to acknowledge as I'm listening to you, Alicia, in this conversation that we're having, things are happening in real time. Racism is not a thing of the past. The direction of terms is like racism causes poor health outcomes. Not race, racism, mm-hmm. right? The direction of oppression, the nowness of things that are happening, as well as people in the lives of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and whatever mm-hmm. label they would like to be called, that their grandparents, their parents, people in their lives currently are have gone through these um, things that feel like they're in the past because of the black and white photos, but are very much now, not just in their lives, but also in your life, the kind of the generation that you are, Alicia and Siobhan, and I am. So Alicia, in thinking about that, it makes me want to ask you, if you could tell any young black person, indigenous person, person of color, including your younger self, um, anything to support their embodied practices with these things in mind, this really rich conversation that we're having, what would it be or what would they be if there's more than one that comes to mind? Yes, I think I had a recent experience that really connected to this question as an adult, actually. And so I was in this reclaiming um, healing workshop for Black and women and femmes. And um, in that workshop, we did this activity where we were defining and listening to what is your guest? 
what is your no, and what is your uncertain? And so through the practice, our facilitator guided us in um, literally saying like, yes, 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 yes. And feeling like, where is that yes in my body? Is it in my heart? Is it in my shoulders? Is it in my stomach? Like, where is my yes? And then you do the same with no, like, no, 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 no. And you notice, where does no sit in my body? And you start really describing like, is it intense? Is it sharp? Is it, you know, where is it at? Like, because then when something comes up for you, and you need that intuitive knowing, you can go back to that place. Like if I'm, you know, being asked to do something that feels uncomfortable, I check in and say, is my stomach turning right now? Is my chest feeling heavy? Oh, that's my no, you know? And so that's how I know by listening to my body. And if I could tell any young person is really starting to really be intuitive with what is your yes, what is your no, and what is your uncertain, you know? And that's something that I wish that we would teach young um, folks from a younger age is like knowing that intuitive, um, knowing those intuitive answers so that they can set boundaries and also um, stand up for themselves and know like what feels more authentic to me to do and what feels like I'm just doing it because I feel like I have to do it or, you know, it's some other thing outside of myself. I'm just so excited that I, as soon as we finish this, I'm gonna go sit and write about what yes, no, and uncertainty yes. is in my body. I couldn't even answer that as you were saying it. I was like, I don't know. I'm 37 years old and I don't know. I just figured it out. I just figured it out. Oh, I feel like, like this just changed my life. Like I'm not even being, well, I'm super dramatic all the time, but like I'm not being <laughs> melodramatic. Like I really feel like that will like change my entire, oh my God, I'm really emotional just thinking about it. This is, whew, <sighs> I just can't even, I, 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 <sighs> It just, I'm emotional because I'm so excited to know what that feels like within my body, but also emotional because like you said, young people don't know this and how, yes. how much healing would there be in our society? How much healing would there be in our world? And if we were taught from an early age, what feelings feel like inside of our bodies? Like yes. I can't, huh. Mm. Wow. Okay. Mm. I was also hearing the resonance of obligation that young people are taught what they're obligated to do as adults, to survive, yes. to mask, mm -hmm. to look a particular way, to be in situations and be invisible or not, right? Whatever the ism is that's keeping them oppressed in those situations, yes. that's what obligation feels. I was like thinking of the no, and it made me think of obligation um and like expectation and not just that but the attachment to expectation from other people that they constantly throw at us right yeah. people in power over us in our own household in our community mm -hmm. um and people we interact with that we're looking for for support and encouragement mm -hmm. where then it comes in this way um comes at us in this way rather and how freeing I can hear and feel the potential of this to be coming from the other direction yes like what kind of freedom would I like based on how I feel yes um mm -hmm. do I want to be hidden in this situation like what if that's my choice what if that's my authentic choice mm -hmm. um and in terms of perception that we are often perceived from without and we internalize these in embodied ways these yeah. things mm. so to feel like that can come from within and that that expands I'm, I'm going to use the word revolutionary again I can't think of a better yeah. word for that but it just feels like a revolution of one right in your life in my life in each of our lives and anyone's lives who's listening we can have a space a, a pre this is the 
when I was like thinking about embodiment practices, like I know a lot of the researchy stuff, the white men has researched us yes. or white women, and they have taken all the lived experiences and they've decided to filter it and then present it back to us. Yes. What I was hearing in this is honoring lived experience and in all the versions of ourselves, like not yes. just now, but before and now and, be and after like permission, something yes. that feels like um, embodiment asks of us, what, what permission do we need? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and that requires us like that embodiment requires us to realize that we're already enough and that we're already mm. abundant within. Because I think mm. and I was thinking as you were talking, Jen, that when we decide to go against the yes, the no, the uncertainty, like it's usually based in like this idea that we have to get something from the outside, whether it's someone's approval or if we had to make more money or, you know, all of these things that are really rooted in scarcity. And I think that um, and I've heard this a lot from folks in spiritual communities, that scarcity is the wound of humanity and that we have to realize that within ourselves that we are abundant people. And that looks like returning back to ourselves and figuring out like, what do we need? But then honoring that in other folks as well. Holy. Wow. Scarcity is the wound of humanity. Dear, oh my goodness, that's incredible. That's incredible. I'm gonna have to sit with that one for a minute yeah. because. Yes. <laughs> yes. I had to sit with that, uh, yes. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I don't have anything to say about that. <laughs> I, I know, I just, my head's <laughs> exploding um, at the moment. <laughs> this is, oh, this conversation's so good. When you said intuitive knowing, not just a phrase like embodiment, which definitely comes from the powerful place down, right? A word, a label, something we're, t we're trying on. Yeah. When you said intuitive knowing, being in the body and being in rhythm, step with yeah. your body, um, Authenticity and transparency were also coming to mind, but really like being in our own rhythm is what I was sitting with about that. Mm. Um, the rush of going into adulthood, I think is what I was trying to say earlier, right? This like, we're preparing as young people to be an adult. We're preparing in our degree programs to be a professional. Mm. We're preparing as a professional to be someone who teaches other professionals, right? There's always like this forward look. Mm. This intuitive knowing when it's always forward looking I don't think that would feel very embodied. And so mm -hmm. I really heard that as an invitation, like what is my yes, no, uncertain now? Like yeah. I heard the word now in that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I really appreciate that um, because I tend to go in the future or the past. I'm very rarely in the now. And I just yeah. really heard that invitation to be like, okay, those three words are really asking you to answer now. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the next now and the next now, right? But every time <laughs> is an opportunity um, that you don't have to project and imagine how it will be, you can actually ask about right now, which as you said earlier, cannot always feel accessible to mm. everyone. Yes. There are things mm -hmm. that can be in the way of that. Trauma is really coming to mind right yes, now. Absolutely. Um, and in the beginning, like when you were telling us about how you were feeling in the day and that it was starting more slowly, that we're also able to be, to ask like, what is the smallest amount that you could ask yourself? Yes, no, or uncertain. It doesn't have to be a big exercise. Yes. Mm -hmm. It can be smaller. So that felt like really full circle for me. So yeah, I wanted to make sure that I showed. So thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. That's, yeah. Oh, that's really good. Okay. I'm so excited to ask this question. Um, I've been thinking about it for <laughs> quite a while. In getting ready to meet with you and to interview you and doing research, I read an article in Forbes magazine titled, Food is Not the Enemy. And there was a quote in there that really blew my mind. The whole article blew my mind, but this quote was 
Um, the quote was, uh, quote, the church still blames one woman choosing to eat for all of humanity's woes, end quote. So I grew up in a very strictly Christian house. And so this really stuck out to me. I like texted friends who grew up in the same way, you know, had the same background. And I guess my question is, how do you help clients who grew up in the church heal their relationship with food and with their bodies with such a strong and I think damaging message as a foundation? Absolutely. So I grew up as well in a very strict uh, Christian religious household. And some of the things that really um, I thought about was how much eating disorder behavior or even like disconnection from body is very much connected to some of the things that are in our religious institutions. And so um, some of the things that really come up for me is perfectionism, right? This Mm -hmm. idea that you're striving to always be perfect. Um, rigidity. So this idea that you have to do everything right. And if you don't do it right, then you fall short of some type of glory, quote unquote, Um, or this binary thinking patterns or things being good and bad and evil and, you know, um, or angelic or something like that. Um, Also, just like following rules being a measure of worthiness. And so Mm -hmm. I think that when we look at the overlap of those patterns, along with eating disorders or disconnection from body, we see a lot of that overlap there. And um, really, you know, a lot of what I do is help folks unpack all of that, like the ways that it shows up, and then um, really create an image of themselves um, that is based in how do I become the most expansive version of myself and not box into these things. And so Mm. that also could look like Um, what is the version of God that I have in my head and how do I begin to create an expansive version of that or a higher power or even disconnect from that if that doesn't serve me um, to create a vision of myself that feels more embodied with who I truly am. Because I think we look at religion for a lot of us that grew up in Christian westernized households, we see God as this white man who um, wants to send everybody to hell and hates everybody that promotes slavery, you know, that hates women, that hates folks in LGBTQ community. And that's not a reflection of the majority of people in humanity. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, how do I create a God figure or an image of creation that looks more in alignment with who I am and the way I was created? And I think there's a lot of unpacking that goes into that. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. I, I, I was just so excited to talk about this. I think that, like you said, there's so much rigidity within, and I don't want to speak to other, you know, sects or other um, religions, but um, there's so much rigidity within that, like keeping your temple pure and following all these rules and, you know, all these things that are said about how to, how to exist within this world, especially as a woman. And so I think it's really important to, if, if they are at a place where they want to maintain their faith, um, Find expansion, that's the word that keeps coming to mind around it. Find some grace around it in terms of how you exist within this world and how your relationship with God impacts that and also can be used as a way to find some grace around your body. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Not as a weapon, but a tool. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. That makes me want to ask uh, just a tiny follow-up question, or maybe it's not going to feel tiny. But whenever I think of fundamentalism and purity culture and these really rigid ways of ascending and purifying and um, elevating to a predetermined place, it makes me also think of diet culture. Purity culture and diet culture are so aligned for me in their rigidity and who gets to say what is healthy, who gets to say what is pure. Do those sit for you as parallel in the way that I'm seeing them or in another way? 
Yeah, I definitely think so. So I think about like how a lot of times we're thinking about that purity culture, like you said, there's this idea of like this one way of being like this one, this and this arrival point as well of like mm-hmm. when we look at recovery too, um, there's this idea of, rec- of arrival. And it's, mm. it, this might be a super unpopular opinion, but you know, I think that recovery is not a state of arrival. I think it's this constant, um, you know, evolutionary journey where you might get to a space that feels good, but then you have to go deeper within that space and then you get deeper and deeper and deeper. I see that as well when I look at, um, you know, when we think about religious culture, um, one of the ways that I've kind of reclaimed my own um, spiritual and religious beliefs is that I don't see it as this one way of being. I think there's multiple ways of being. I think there's multiple things that are unseen to us all around us all of the time. And all of those hold the same amount of, um, they're all important. They don't know, no area is more important than the next. Like I'm looking at all my plants in my house right now. And I'm like, these plants are just as important as I am, you know, like, and mm. when I go out to walk on the earth, the earth is just as important as I am. The sun mm. that gives us light every day is important as I am. And so, you know, all of us as humans, but also as other beings are a creation of something. And we all hold that same amount of importance. And so I think about that. And then again, looking at the eating disorder treatment, knowing that again, it's it's about going deeper and not getting to a space where we just get to and stop and say, oh, I'm good now. I've recovered, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Ooh, thank you so much for that. I was hearing like some phrasing in my head, like the circumstances in life change. Yes. Life changes, life mm-hmm. is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, a point of arrival of this pure point of whatever the label is recovered. Um, I can't think of other words, but like something like that, that mm-hmm. have an illusion yes. that once we've arrived, the work is done. Yeah. Healed, cured. We're yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, which makes me think about violence mm-hmm. that feels violent, mm-hmm. um, that there, that we can be led to believe that we will come to a place where we never feel like this has a falseness to it, but there's a lot of harm from beginning to end about that. It's a rhetoric that I used from my training in the first five years of being a dietitian. Um, Come with me on this journey to this place that I'm already in, even though I was absolutely not in that place, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Just the, the emptiness of that language. I'm really remembering how empty that felt, the cognitive dissonance within myself. I didn't have a word for it then or a phrase. Like I just, it didn't feel right. And I'm really hearing, um, just thinking about purity is often about right and wrong, that binary thinking, the black and white thinking, um, things that felt right that no longer do is part of that journey also, including someone in recovery, being able to speak for themselves more, right? Their voice gets stronger as they get more recovered. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that's not a static place. It's a dynamic Mm -hmm. way of being. It's probably ways of being right. I want to even like pluralize that. Um, So that, wow. Thank you so much for answering that additional question. Yeah. And this isn't an indictment on, people who are religious, people who are spiritual, but I, at least I can speak personally, I'm not going to speak for other people. I think that quite often being in these very rigid environments can really lead to a, I'm not saying religion leads to eating disorders, definitely not saying that, but I think the rigidity of it can absolutely lead to some behaviors that people might use to try to grab control because they don't feel control otherwise. So I'll speak personally. So I, like I said, I grew up in a Christian family and I know that there's, I always felt like I was striving to be good, striving to be holy, striving to be pure, striving to be clean. 
and you know fell short in what probably was what that would have looked like for other people. And so it was easier to try to grasp control by what I was eating, what I was not eating, what I was eating a lot of. And so I think people, and I, I was talking to a client about this yesterday, many clients actually, like we, we pick coping skills because they work. There's no such thing as a good coping skill or a bad coping skill. This just happened to be one for me. It happens to be one for a lot of people having some, trying to, grasp control around food or how they interact with their bodies, a coping skill can become either more helpful or more harmful than it was at one time. That's kind of how I see how it works. But in terms of, and I, you know, I've worked with some clients who are also, um, who also have a background in certain religions or certain aspects of faith. And there's been conversation around that. Like, I feel like I cannot live, I cannot ascribe to this level of holiness, this level of perfection, but I can make sure that I don't eat like, you know? So I think that, I think that any kind of rigid structure in one's life can absolutely lead to some harmful relationship with body and with food. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm actually writing about that now. Um, and a lot of the themes that you said, you know, really resonated with some of the things that I put down and, and also um, some of the patterns that got me into disordered eating growing up mm -hmm. as well in a religious household were the need to control. Like you said, yes. perfection is impossible. Nobody mm -hmm. can be perfect, right? And mm -hmm. so when you realize that and you're like, well, then how else can I be good enough or how else can I feel a sense of worthiness? It is in that, okay, well, then I'm going to try to grasp control of the things that I can. And especially yeah. adding the layer of being, um, having maybe multiple oppressions, maybe it's mm -hmm. like, well, I can't like just get out of my black skin. I can't just right. get out of my womanness. You know, I can't just get out of like poverty or, mm -hmm. you know, disability or whatever. And so now, you know, this is the thing that I can control, you know, and so I think that that's another way it can show up. And I actually talked a lot about that. I did a panel um, not too long ago with a couple colleagues called Religious Trauma, White yes. Supremacy and Eating Disorders, where they were even adding in those layers as well. And so I think that um, really like this is, you know, for a lot of folks that have subscribed to a religious tradition or a spiritual tradition, um, this comes up a lot. And, you know, you can hear it just even talking to other folks as well. So I think is something that we really have to turn an eye to and see yes. like what is going on within the like um the structures or um within like however this is made up that's like mm -hmm. contributing or maybe like not contributing but um bringing up some of these patterns for folks absolutely absolutely mm -hmm. thank you for speaking to that that's really helpful yes <laughs> oh my goodness okay i can listen to y'all day about any topic and now I'm going to go to the next one <laughs> a theme I'm already hearing so some of this may feel repetitive um and also I feel like this is an opportunity for a little bit of expansion about something we've talked about is that there's a lot of conversation about helping professionals of all kinds about quote what helping people really looks like like a scope of practice like mm -hmm. professional performance indicator there's all these kinds of words for these um and it seems to really, something I'm really getting present to, especially in this pandemic and a lot of us being online, where I can just witness it mm. over and over, is that it misses the mark for marginalized and oppressed folks, yeah. like truly. And it's especially, or at least that's what I'm looking for, perhaps, is like around embodied practices and ways in which people are blocked from being embodied because of the power dynamics that are inherent, even the phrase and the audacity to say, I am helping you. Mm -hmm. um, 
What do you think is important to consider that could be missing from generalizations, like of whole fields that you notice? Yes. Yes. So I think it's like really looking at how it's even structured. And so like when we think about um, ways that we define helping people, it's usually based in like this. Again, I think it's a very westernized way of thinking of like taking information and then like kind of like deducing it down to like a workbook or just a general book Mm. and then like having these like step by step instructions on like how to do a thing, you know, like that in itself is very prescriptive. Mm. And it also is like, so who did the research? Who was it normed on? Um, who put this publication out? And has it been widely used on a variety of populations and shown to actually be helpful? Oftentimes, the answer to that is no. Um, oftentimes, <laughs> it's very a limited um, group of folks that has been shown to be helpful on. And so I think that a lot of us through our training um, have been through programs and, and currently maybe even in our practice use those type of prescriptive ways of like treating folks or helping folks, you know? And with that, again, it's just very limiting, as you were saying, Jen, in that um, it is not for everybody, you know? And so I think that the answer to that could be really allowing the folks that we're working with to be the center of like what's helpful, not the research, not these ideas, not just these random people that are representative of one population, but truly the fullness of folks we work with and having them be like the folks to say like, here's what's helpful for me, you know, and approaching it in that way, um, even within our research. And so I think um, trying to add to that, um, it looks like centering those voices. So a lot of times, again, like because of the white dominating field, we don't have a lot of black researchers or even like black indigenous and people of color researchers, you know, doing the work, you know, being having things normed on their population that are through their lens. And I think that's really important to say, because even I've noticed now where research will be done by a white, um, you know, like provider or something or researcher, but it's through their lens of interpreting a certain community, which is obviously always going to be based in a lens of that privilege, going to be some spots that they don't see, you know, and so, um, or don't recognize, you know, because of that privilege. And so, um, you know, I think that that's important to know and be aware of and have folks that are within community that are doing the work, like be able to do this, you know, do these studies with their own communities and have like the work speak for like what you're trying to actually quote unquote help you know like the work does that by asking people like what do you need and having Mm. them define it you know and not just saying like this is what they need and we're now going to create a thing yes I was really thinking about and kind of sitting with self-determination as you were talking that assuming the presumptiveness of I'm going to help you and I'm going to help you in these specific ways that I've already decided based on research that I've already done about people who look like me, me saying this as a white woman who is mm-hmm. often in research, not as much as white men, but right, pretend to be the subjects. Yeah. Um, that self-determination is a part of and aligned with lived experience. Yes. And research has a real denial and denial, I know, is a quite an agent of white supremacy. It's what mm-hmm. lives in me when I can't notice these things. I know that it's denial. Mm-hmm. That it denies that it came from people's lived experience. Um, perhaps an exception, although I haven't thought about this very much, is community-based research, right? Where you involve the community. Yes. But there's still a level of being researched. So it makes me question what the pi- power dynamics still are. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I used to work in public health and social work while I was still getting my degree. And I took a back seat a lot because I didn't want to adjust what was happening because the community was supposed to be involved. Yeah. And yet I could hear, cause I did a lot of transcription. I could hear the hesitations, mm-hmm. the lack mm-hmm. of transparency yes. and the, um, presentation or masking of being with people that they know are researching them and wanting to perform. It was very apparent in that work. So it, it makes me feel hopeful, but also like many things, public health, it's all about taking something macro and pretending it's micro. And like, we can assume what other people need that real, I'll use the word again, presumptive. Like, it's just like, um, yeah. What the space that is occupied by the researchers that should be occupied by the lived experience, right? It like pushes it out of the way. So I was really thinking about that. And in a session, I was just thinking, oh, I wonder and really want to reflect and think about what am I pushing out of sessions Mm. and where I'm taking up space. And I don't just mean talking. I mean like lack of acknowledgement, lack of affirmation, lack of reflection. Like, is this your experience or have I just turned that into something in my white woman brain that Mm -hmm. is now something else? Like Mm -hmm. I need to check in with you. Um, And just thinking about that and even thinking on a bigger level, in public health research, which always uses the language of intervention, like they need to intervene Mm -hmm. because something not okay is happening. Mm -hmm. Even the language of that is so oppressive. Yes. Um, I was just really thinking about that because you were not from that space, right? You were talking about this other space that's like, what actually supports? What actually helps? What feels easeful, workable, effective? Like words like that that are personal to the individual Mm. or group or however that's expanding. But I was just, I really, I'm giving myself a note here to really think about that because I wonder how many ways in which, because of what's ingrained with me in my training, I'm still missing something like that. Mm. I can like feel that I am, but I don't have any examples yet, but I can feel it. Absolutely. And I think like even through this podcast episode, like even this part here, we're working through it in some ways together, because as you were talking, it also reminded me of like, if someone's coming to my community and wanting to do research on me, right, about a thing, because of potentially um, ancestral trauma, even around like, you know, I know that for our for black people specifically there was um experiments that were done on them that you know they can mm-hmm. probably feel in, that we can feel in our bones and our bodies yes. and our cells mm-hmm. that are passed down mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um and specifically on black women um i think about even like um there was some there was a time where uh, black folks were put in zoos and seen like as spectacles mm-hmm. or even like the story of sarah barton who was like taken around as like this show um person for like the world to see like her body was used as a show and so i think that those experiences live in our bodies as black folks and do keep us in that apprehensive and suspicious and hesitant state when research comes and so it made me even think about let's like just take away the research like the name of it and like and everything and dismantle that whole thing and like really build something new that's based in like, I'm sitting with you and I'm learning with you. And so like, mm-hmm. I think about like in other cultures that are not Western, like indigenous or even African cultures, how when it comes to learning information um, or knowing, it's about really like sitting and building an authentic, deep connection. And then through that, there's of course going to be trials and things that come up, but through those trials, it's like you have your community or village that's like there for you that are helping you through that, that process. And again, like you're all learning together and then, you know, like, okay, here's what we're going to do for healing. Like, this is our person that knows about this thing. And so I think it is kind of like recentering and giving that empowerment back to the community in that way. And maybe just like dismantling this whole idea of like yes. what re- 
research even is, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's, it's moments like this that I have this brief vision of taking my degrees and, like, setting them on fire. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Um, I just had a really clear vision of us in a clearing surrounded yes. by gorgeous... Lovely smelling pine trees, which here in New Mexico, when it hails, it damages the pine trees and it smells like there's an air fresher in the air. Like I just had that smell. (laughs) I just had this smell and I was like, I would love for you. Like I was thinking of witnessing and I was, Mm -hmm. I was just feeling really present to being witnessed and for the honor of you allowing both of you, allowing Mm -hmm. me to witness you and some really important conversations. Um, and that I just wanted you to witness me burning my degrees, my letters. <laughs> yes. um, Rosie Mensa, a dietitian and nutritionist in Canada, talks about credentialism, the power in, well, in mindism, right? I've had all these years doing all these degrees. How can I go backwards to a place of listening when I have done all this work and spent all this money? Yes. And I was just realizing how disconnected I feel from that. Yes. I, don't even, I don't even remember what it feels like to be connected to that. And I was feeling that in the room, this Zoom room of all three of us, the lack of connection and identity with the power over others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And that feels, I mean, I don't even, I don't actually have words for that either. There's quite a few things I've written down. So Siobhan, Mm -hmm. I'm caught up to you, I think, in writing notes over here. Um, Like some (laughs) like nuggets that you've shared um, and that I've heard from each of us that I'm like, wow, that one thing I could reflect about that for a lot of pages. Yeah. Like I'm it just that uh, filling up feeling. And actually I'm almost feeling an overflow feeling. Like I am yeah. full of yeah. the, I want to say magic. I don't know how that feels to either of you, yeah. but the magic of being words. together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, and now there's this overflow that feels expansive. Like I can mm-hmm. feel it outside of myself. So yeah. <sighs> thank you. I just yes. want to say thank you. Yes. Yes. We've talked a lot about macro, so overarching and micro, smaller, intimate level things in this conversation. We will ask this of all of our guests. What do you think we can do to take what we have learned from you to help make a difference? Yeah, I think that exactly what y'all like throughout the podcast, I've heard both of y'all both say like, I'm going to like step away with my notes and like reflect, I'm going to do this thing here. And I think that's actually what it looks like is taking um, the information that, you know, you're downloading and then sitting with it and figuring out like what place it sits in your body and then asking your body like, what do I need to do with this information Mm -hmm. now, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. using that as your guide towards like, what to do next, you know, because I think that um, when we think about knowing things, we always think about knowing as in like, I learned this thing, I did this thing, or the degrees we've been talking about so far, but knowing is so much more than just like what our culture has told us it means to know. Like Mm -hmm. there's so many other ways of knowing things. And I think the part of what you all are getting in with this podcast is like the knowingness that comes from our body, which is deeper than just like being with your body in a moment. Like that's amazing. That's great. That's a wonderful form of being. But when you really know through like knowing that um, a lot of things that we know about our bodies have been passed down like for generations through like Mm -hmm. ancestors, um, for those who like think in this way, like through different lives that we might've lived Mm -hmm. beyond Mm -hmm. this earth, you know, like all of that has been stored in our body. And we just have to really remember that. But a lot of times because of like all the systems and things we forget, because the systems keep us like disconnected from like knowing and remembering, you know? And Mm -hmm. so like 
taking this information we've talked about so far, allowing it to download and then figuring out what part it sits in and then tapping into that part, I think is like opening up that deep level and that's at a cellular level or in your bones or wherever to like learning more about like yourself, but then what to do mm, next. Mm, ooh, I, I love that. Just go <laughs> and do something. We talked about that last episode. Yeah. Um, I, you can't, obviously there's lots of intellectualizing you can do lots of research yep. lots of reading but at one at some point you've got to just like okay I'm gonna go practice this and yes. I think that that's what I'm getting from what you're saying right now I mean I'm gonna go journal for like hours or yeah, I can really <laughs> see this happening but I still think after I journal for hours I'm gonna be like okay now I gotta do it so mm-hmm. I, I definitely hear that from you that feels really powerful and really um it makes me think of altar calls as we've been talking about church. Like this is yes. my altar call. Yes. <laughs> you exhorted me to go do this. Um, that's my work's exhortation. So thank you. Thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> I'm just sitting with the beauty of this. It's making me really, really misty. I'm just sitting yeah. here feeling misty about yeah. the beauty of this. Yeah. This yeah. has been such, uh, this has been so life-altering for me and such a beautiful gift. Thank you so much for being here with us and giving us the opportunity to learn with you, unlearn with you, and, you know, take what we have talked about and go forth. <laughs> yes. it's, just, it's been such a gift, such a gift. Yes. I'm just so grateful that you both, like, you know, helped this space, you know, for, like, this to happen. And I think that it really, again, shows how, like, healing and change can really happen beyond just, like, the confounds of like these buildings and all the yes. things that society, these borders and the like arbitrary states that were drawn up, right? Like the fact that we're all three connecting in this space and we're energetically like in flow and in alignment throughout the mm-hmm. conversation. It really reminded me of a meditation I did about two years ago where we were um, doing a heart opener and um, there was a part where we were all sitting with our eyes closed in this circle and there was a space where it was like, now imagine like you're opening your heart and like the light is shining and the light that's shining from you is touching the heart parts of those across the room mm. for you and around and they're meeting in the middle to like create this bigger light and that's what this really felt like just oh. talking to you all which is like for me feels like so much healing um to have like all of our lights kind of shining to create this bigger thing and really seeing each other um for like all the parts of who we are and I think that that's what's really going to cause like not only internal you know healing and change but also like that cultural shift and change as well oh, oh. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm actually almost speechless because of how powerful this has been. Almost speechless. <laughs> As we close out today, what would you like everyone listening to know about what you're up to and also how can they find you? Yeah. And so folks, if you want to find me, you can follow me on Instagram at Black and Embodied. And then you can also go to my website, which is blackandembodied.com if you want to hear of any like you know, podcast episodes I've done or any other um, talks that I've done, those are all on my website. Um, And then right now, um, I'm currently leading an eating disorder and disorder eating group um, and body image group. It's called Sage and Spoon for Black Mm. folks. And so folks can, you know, join that. It's a global group. And so you can join in from anywhere. 
and it's on the last Tuesday of every month at 7 p.m. EST, which is my time, Eastern Standard Time. Um, and then outside of that, um, I've, I'm still doing some things around like my online healing collective. Mm-hmm. I'm currently working on creating like a body liberation collective for providers that are coming into the field and want to connect with um, folks that look like them. And then outside of that, my more bigger project that I'm super excited about is that I'm working on a book right now. Um, yes, Thank you for I am to working on it. My proposal is supposed to the end this week. And so I am super hopeful that, you know, some publishing you companies can pick it up and like, we can go ahead and get this, 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 this and road, this show on the road. Media. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. I cannot wait to buy this book. At least and on Instagram. And embodiment for the rest of us. Seriously. You look forward to being next time. I already know. I'm so excited. I... Like I said, I'm such a big fan. I love everything you write, everything you say, and I honestly cannot wait to read this book. I'm still right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. I'm so pumped. Oh my gosh, I'm so pumped. <sighs> and so in case, because everyone can't see me, I'm just like rubbing my temples and I have my mouth hanging up and that's what's happening over here for Jen. <laughs> yes, we are so excited. So thank you so, so, so much for this opportunity. We are so grateful and so so honored that you wanted to spend time with us. Uh, that's we're our dancing. episode. Yeah, we're dancing. <laughs> we're just dancing around because all this awesome energy. I'm like sweating. It's a lot. Oh, <laughs> so excited. All thank good you. things. All good things. Have yes. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Bye. We'll see you Bye. next time. Bye. <laughs>